Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. And welcome back to Meeting of the Minds. Today, we are here with the world's most dangerous man, the great Ken Shamrock. Ken, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. You still got it. See the guns, like the shirt. It's awesome. Yeah, I I try to live my life one way, and that's uh, the way I've always lived it at 100%. That's it. I love it. So we'll take it from the top. Talk about growing up, your childhood, your upbringing, and how that contributed to your mindset, your perspective, and mental toughness. Sounds good, man. Let's dive into it. All right. So what are maybe some of your earliest sports memories or growing up, just in general? Yeah, it's kind of hard when uh, you think about earlier, because I was in and out of uh, juvenile hall and and group homes. Um, I think I started into my my juvenile hall stand at 10, 10 years old, and then um, group homes taken out of my home at, at 13 uh, and, and never lived at home since that, since I was 13, I was always in other placements. So being involved with sports at a young age, I was at different places at different times, but never really long-term in one place. Uh, But from my early experiences from Oh, I would say probably from, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 12 years old before I actually uh, had been put into placement at 13 in and out of juvenile hall, of course, but in different middle schools and stuff like that. um, I wrestled and I played Pop Warner at the times that I could play and I had a natural gift. Um, I know in wrestling, a lot of times I was the only kid that made it to the finals uh, but I would end up losing in the finals because I didn't have the technique or the skill sets. I would finesse or muscle or just aggressive my way into the finals because uh, at nine years old, uh, 10 years old, 11 years old, you could get away with a lot of just being a tough kid. Uh, but when you got into the finals, you were normally going against somebody who had gone to camps um, or done certain things. Um, and, and I would, I would lose. So either one, I would win or I would lose, but most of the time, um, 
I would probably lose just because I didn't have the finesse. So, but I was always that kid that had the potential, the natural potential, even in football, uh, wasn't much on offense. Um, uh, I was more of a, a defensive player because I didn't have the understanding of rules and didn't have the understanding of, of having patience to run in the a gap or the B gap. Uh, I would run wherever I wanted to, and I would hit people. So I, would play defense and they would usually put me at, at linebacker. Um, so um, early on people understood that I had this natural ability to find the football and hit people. So I excelled. So uh, fortunately for me, that gave me some sort of acceptance early on in my life uh, that, that uh, people wanted to help at different, different times in my life because of my athletic ability uh, teachers and, and, uh, and coaches would, would, would take a little extra time to make sure that I made the grades in order to be on the football field or the wrestling mat. So it helped me um, uh, because I wasn't a good kid uh, that they wanted to help me because of my personality. That's for sure. But uh, yeah, so I think a lot of that natural ability, of course, that didn't come till later when I really started to refine it, but, but a lot of my natural ability really kept me in the hunt. Right. And as you say, natural ability, of course, there's that physical natural ability and also that mental natural ability, natural ability where you're able to flip that switch. And we always say there's some dogs that naturally bite and there's songs that don't yeah. bite. Right? right. So yeah. how did how did you was juvenile hall able to help you channel that a little bit better? Or did you do that outside? How did you how were you able to control it and flip it on at the right time? Because there's no question to get to your level as an athlete. You don't just get there being a wild man. That might be the beginning, but then there's discipline on top of that. Yeah, my first experience of learning how to <clears throat> control that was in the group up, the Shamrock Boys Home. Uh, prior to that, I, you know, a lot of times I would get kicked out of games, um, you know, just not very structured. And even wrestling mats, I would get in fights. Um, and so I, I wasn't really structured till I got to Shamrock Boys Home. And the Shamrock Boys Home taught me how to actually funnel playing football because usually I played a lot of street ball and, you know, Pop Warner here and there, but really didn't understand the game because I was never really there long enough to really get the game. And so I remember when I really started to understand was when I was in a football game and uh, we were playing a scrimmage game at Lassen and I hit this kid. They put me at cornerback because I kept jumping off sides, uh, you know, playing linebacker. So they moved me way back to cornerback to, and I started learning how to cover receivers, my responsibility, you know, this guy goes this way, this guy goes this way back in the flat, all these little things, these keys that you would key on. And this kid was coming out in the, in the, in the, in, in my area. And I remember the ball was in the air and I just remember beeline into the guy that was going to catch it. And I just hit him. And when I hit the ground, I just kept driving my feet because I had so much anger and frustration in me when I let it out. And luckily I hit him when the ball got to him. Um, it wasn't a flag. It was a good hit. And, uh, and I remember jumping up and uh, the teammates started hitting me on the helm and, and I used to, and none of these kids liked me, you know, cause I, I, I didn't know them. And I was, I was from the Shamrock boys home, which was a group home for kids. And we weren't all that accepted at the time because we were always getting in trouble. So I remember these kids started hitting me on the helmet and the pad saying, nice hit, nice hit. And, and the coaches were like, yeah, good job. And I remember looking up in the stands, which is to us, the enemy, the parents, right? 
And uh, they were screaming, yelling, hit him again, kill him. And I'm like, how is that right? Like, that's what I do. <laughs> these are these grown parents saying the same thing that I would say, like, kill him. Um, and yet it was okay. And I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on what, what was happening. Like, this was complete role reversal. And um, I remember asking Bob Shamrock, you know, like, how is what I just did right? I said, I, I had this plastic helmet. I had these plastic pads. And I hit this kid with all the intent of putting him in the hospital. He was blowing snot bubbles, literally seeing him blowing snot bubbles after I hit him. And I was only a freshman. And uh, I remember thinking to myself and asking him and going, how is that right? I mean, like, I could do that on the street and and I get arrested. So now I'm here doing it in front of everyone with everyone to see. And they're saying it's OK. And he goes, he just looked at me and just kind of chuckled. Right. Because if I'm coming from a kid like me, you don't usually get questions like that. Right. And so he goes, OK. He said, well, let me let me explain it to you. He goes. Life is 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 very confusing in some points, he said, but this is what you have to remember. You have to remember that whatever you're doing, you need to find what those rules are. Whatever you're in. And when you find those rules, you have to stay within those rules to be successful. It may not look right. It may not seem right. But if it's within the rules, it's okay. There's a lot of laws and a lot of different things that we have that are completely confusing because you're literally robbing somebody. But as long as you stay within those parameters, you're not robbing them. Um, And he goes, this is where you, where you need to learn within sports. Life is the same way. It's like, if you would have hit him a minute earlier and jumped up and kicked him in the head, say you wouldn't have gotten the same praise, even though maybe it was the same kind of violence you had in your mind, but it was outside the rules. And I remember thinking to myself, I get it. Like, oh, like the light just came on. Like, oh, you mean I can go ahead and do however I want to do on the wrestling mat, torque a guy's head off. As long as they don't tell me to stop, I can keep squeezing. Um, and I can hit a guy as hard as I want with a plastic helmet on, a plastic pads on, as long as it's within the whistle. And I just got it. And then I started transferring that into the world of like, okay, what are the rules in this? Like, if I'm working here, what do I got to do? Like, what do I, how do I stay within my rules so as I don't get in trouble? And so it really started to, to help me understand. And obviously, I got in my trouble because I lost my temper. I was hot-headed. I was an angry kid. So I still got into trouble all the way until I was 40, 47 years old. Um, you know, I'm 56 now, but um, I, I got in trouble a long time because I'd always do things outside of what I was supposed to do. And I knew it too. And that was the difference is I knew it and I was able to, to come to pull it back. But it was that it was sports that really helped me understand how I could live in life and be successful. Absolutely. And then you take that, you start transitioning then into mixed martial arts. And obviously you being one of the main guys, the guy, talk about that a little bit, the discipline that required um, the focus. Talk about that. Yeah, it was uh, it was exciting to see my my first mixed martial arts because I don't think well at least I know in the U.S. nobody really ever saw this before. 
And I remember I was in Mooresville, North Carolina, and I was doing some pro wrestling um, at uh, Nelson Royals uh, Wrestling School. And I was traveling around the area down there, and I did a couple of tough bands, and I won a couple of tough bands down there. And so I was just starting to get into my professional uh, career, which is wrestling. And then I saw this tape from Japan because I went over to Japan and worked at Baba's Group um, early in my career in wrestling. And 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 so when I was, I, I saw my one of my friends who. I had been working over in Japan. Uh, Dean Malenko showed me this tape of, of these guys uh, wrestling. It was, it was a pro wrestling event, right? I remember watching this thing and it looked nothing like pro wrestling. It looked like a shoot or a real fight. And they were punching each other open hand. They were kicking each other, kneeing each other, throwing each other. And then when they hit the ground, they started doing all these joint manipulations in and out of these moves and stuff. And I was, I was just like locked in on the screen going in my mind going, that is unbelievable. But like, how do you do that? Like here, I was a fighter. I mean, a street fighter, a brutal guy. And I'd never seen anything like this. And I'm like, I want to do that. And I remember, um, Dean says, well, yeah, but man, it's real. I mean, it's a real, I mean, the endings kind of worked out, but these guys are hitting and hitting and kicking it. I says, yeah, I, I want to do it. And so I remember went down to Florida and did a tryout down there. And of course, everything I did down there was a shoot. It was real. Uh, put me through a tryout. I, I fought all the guys down there. I ended up thumping them all because I had a background, right? I mean, I was a tough kid um, and a uh, wrestling background. I was a street fighter. And so I just put that together and just started thumping everybody. And I felt pretty good about myself. And, uh, and then they put me up, uh, uh, in Japan a couple months later, I don't remember how long it was, but went up to Japan again to try out there again. And the first two guys I thumped, young guys, and I was feeling pretty cocky. And then these two guys walked in that I saw on the videotape, and it was Masa Fanaki and Minoru Suzuki. And I remember looking at those guys, they walked in, and, and I was like, well, those are the two guys I saw on the tape. And Akira was with these other two guys, and at the time I didn't know, but they were young boys. They were just beginners. <clears throat> And so then I remember Sammy, who was the guy that brought me up there, screams at him and say, hey, you guys want to get some time on the mat? And, of course, they both looked over and said, yeah. And the guy was a big kid. I mean, I, was probably, I probably went about 220 at the time, 217, 220, pretty big kid. And um, so they were like, yeah. And Fanaki probably went about 220, about the same size, 215, but he was an inch taller than me. And Minoru Suzuki was this little scrawny kid. <laughs> He's hundred and. 85 pounds, maybe five, five, 10, five, nine, five, 10. Um, and so he was going to come in and, and uh, I remember he goes, okay, come on in. And Suzuki was the first one in there. And I was like, I'm going to squash this guy. And uh, I remember uh, shooting on him and um, I remember Sammy going, you okay? And I'm looking at him, what are you talking about? I mean, he literally choked me out. <laughs> I was like, he's going, you okay? And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, and I knew something had happened because I, I I couldn't remember why I was on the stone on the ground. This guy's standing up. And uh, he literally just choked me out when I shot in on him. He just got my back and choked me. So we went at it again. He armbarred me. He'll hook me. And I remember he was, he's putting them on. Now, you got to remember, this is a time when nobody knew what a tap out was. Like, we didn't know. So he's putting it on. And I'm like, I, I mean, it's hurting. And you can tell it's hurting. But I'm not screaming or anything like that. I'm fighting to get out of it. And so Sammy goes, no, no, tap. And I, I, I still don't know what he's saying to me. And so I keep fighting. Luckily, uh, Suzuki uh, didn't break my leg because he could have, 
or my arm because I didn't tap and I kept fighting and he kept holding it, holding it, and eventually he let it go. Sammy goes, listen, if he gets you, tap. And I, I, I didn't understand what he was saying to me, like, tap what? And he, he, pulled me aside, he goes, listen, if you get into a move, you can't get out and it hurts. Just tap him or the mat, mostly him. So he knows you're tapping. I was like, oh, okay. <clears throat> and in my mind, I was like, that's like giving up. And so he would get me again and I would tap. And Sammy goes, you need to tap. And he says, just practice. Of course, I didn't get that, right? It's just like, to me, it was giving up. But he just beat the crap out of me for 30 minutes. And I'd already, you know, uh, wrestled these other guys. And I thought I was, I was it. Well, I got him and, and man. And then he says, hey, you still ready to go some more? And of course, I'm, I'm thinking I, I'm disappointed. I want to go more. I want to go again. So he brings in Fanaki. Now, Fanaki's bigger. Same thing. He just stomped me, beat me up. And I just kept thinking to myself, I, I, I screwed up. Like, there's no way they're going to invite me. <laughs> so I ended up going back and they were saying, no, you did a good job. You know, you have people to like tap on your back, giving you sympathy. Oh, you did good. You did. That's how I felt. Like, yeah, whatever. But in their minds, I did because I wouldn't give up. And I kept coming after them, even though they were doing it and I wouldn't tap. And even though that's not smart, but they saw that toughness and they said, we can train this guy. And um, so I went back um, to Mooresville and with my head down, thinking I just, I messed up. And I got a call later on and asking if I wanted to come up and, 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 and fight on their next show. Well, I was like, yeah, hey, yeah. But then I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, as he's talking, I'm going, man, I ain't ready. And he goes, how'd you like to come to Japan for a couple of weeks before we um, put you in there and you can, you can train up here. And I was like, yes. And uh, of course, that didn't go well with the family because I was going to be gone for a while. And uh, but I felt like if I was going to do this, I had to commit to it. Like I, I had to commit to this. And it was something I loved, even though I got beat up and all that. I was so like into it, like how they did it, the leg locks, the arm bar, the joke, how they said it. I was so into that. Like I wanted to learn it. And I remember going up to the gym, the dojo, and, and I spent all my time there. I was last one in, first one in, last one out. I mean, I was so into it. And I remember I picked up the heel hook was the first thing I learned. And I went into my first match and, and I won my first match. And it was in front of 17,000 people. Like, you imagine that going into your first match? And they had to teach me, like, listen, this is not a real fight, but it is between the finish. Like, you're going to get hit. You're going to get kicked. You're going to get thrown. You have to fight back. They're not going to try to knock you out, but they're going to hit you. Uh, and it was as physical as you could get. It was like being in a sparring match when you're getting somebody ready for a fight. That's what it was like. You're not trying to hurt them, but you're gonna you're gonna hit them. You're gonna let them know you're there. And uh, and a couple of times because it's hard to control. A couple of times they do hit you hard, and if you're not ready for it, you're gonna get knocked out. So I went into my first one and I won my first match, and um, it was it was exciting. Uh, it was it I mean people popping cheering my name, which means that I had done well. Um, and I didn't know the, the talent that I had because I kept thinking I screwed up when I got beat up so bad, but they saw it in me that I had what it took. And I remember from that time they started training me. And then of course I ended up fighting not Don Naka Nielsen, uh, in my very first real fight, even though it was in, uh, Fujiwara Gumi's organization. Um, but we had done a specials match, me and uh, Takahashi. Uh, in the dome where we were the only two that actually did a real shoot, a real fight. And I remember breaking this guy, just snapping this, just kick Muay Thai boxers, world champion, 
just taking his arm and twisting it behind his ear. And he's screaming and yelling. And he didn't know how to tap either. <laughs> no one told him, Hey, you got to tap. He had boxing gloves on. And, and so um, ended up winning that one. And, and from that point on, I was like, I, I'm, I'm in, I'm going to do this. And of course, then uh, the pancreas came up. Absolutely. Talk, talk about now how you developed mentally as a fighter in terms of preparation, because again, you're competing in front of thousands of people, eventually millions. So you know all eyes are on you. What are maybe some of the mental mistakes you made early in your career or maybe things you focused on the wrong way that you learned and developed as you went on? Yeah, I would say, um, I think right away, um, I was different than I think most fighters because I don't think anybody really had that understanding of what it was to be a professional in MMA or in Noble's Bar. There was just, I was the first one that literally started a team and started training as a unit and then started breaking down film. Um, So I would never say, especially early in my career when I was successful, because I, there was, there wasn't a time when I stepped in the ring um, that I wasn't successful. Like early on, I went from the beginning to the top in, in a matter of, uh, what, six months. Um, so my, my, my transition to this, because it was so young and so new, um, that there weren't a whole lot of people besides people in Japan and maybe the Gracie's, uh, that had an understanding of what it is. Right. And so for me, when I jumped in there, I started out so fast and I started learning because I stayed in Japan and I started working at the dojo and I was there 24 seven. And I learned so much early on that um, I think that I had the mindset early on at being very professional, going into fights, knowing what, what guys were doing. And the hard part is, especially in those earlier days where there were no film on anybody fighting MMA or no holes barred. So basically what we had to do is look at guys and find out what it is they did before that. Were they jujitsu players? Were they wrestlers? Whatever they were. And then you just break down film on it and and see what it is that they did, know what they were doing. Um, And a lot of times you would get alternates in there. So you didn't even know who you were going to fight going in. So really with me, um, we did what we called the lines in tryouts. And I felt like um, having uh, the, the conditioning, uh, having the mental toughness going into these kind of fights were what you needed to be prepared to go in and fight in this type of event. Because as far as skill sets and people having video to break down on their particular fights uh, wasn't there. And so it was really just knowing who they were, what background they were coming from. And then in the gym training, like you were fighting in no holds barred, bare knuckle, uh, get on the mat and you start going at one another and you don't go like hitting them hard, but you hit them. Um, and kind of like what I did in Japan um, in the earlier days with Fujiwara Gumi and, um, and uh, you know, with UWF where you were hitting guys, but you weren't trying to knock them out. So that's kind of how we practice going into no holes barred. Uh, so that guys had an understanding of what it would feel like, what would work, what wouldn't work going into these particular fights. So for me, um, I, I thought from the beginning that I stepped in, um, I was always prepared. Now, it wasn't until, you know, uh, later on after I started getting a lot of success that, you know, um, I started slipping a little bit. I started feeling myself a little bit. Uh, and then that's where it got me beat by Hoist, uh, because it almost felt like there was nobody in the world that could beat me 
because I was fighting guys from everybody in the world and had no idea what the Gracies were. So, um, yeah, so I think that if I was looking at it, I would say one of the times that I came in unprepared was when I went in against Gracie because I didn't think anything of the gi. I didn't understand it, didn't care to. I just thought there were guys walking around pajamas on and that they were strutting their black belts around like that was some sort of trophy and that, you know, your trophy to me was actually going in there and, and, and being a ranked number one in the world by fighting people. You don't have to wear a belt to do that. Um, and so to me, that's kind of my thought process. And then I went in and got choked by it. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, I would say, um, my study habits were really good early on. Uh, I always tried to find out who I was fighting. And if I didn't know my training itself, uh, was harder than anything anybody else was doing. And I felt like those were the credentials he needed to win and be successful. And it, it showed it even my training with the other fighters. So, um, we were excited about that, but the biggest letdown, uh, the first one, uh, I truly believe was against Hoist Gracie when I didn't understand it and I didn't give him any credit or any thought of him being good. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And how do you balance taking it personal? Because all great athletes take it personal, but at the same time, you can't get overly attached to the outcome and make like an identity meaning about yourself just based on if you lose or if you make that mistake. How do you balance that? Well, it's hard because... You know, when you're, when I was like, the, I was, you know, very successful early on and, and learned very quickly and then to jump into my home, my home country and then get beat by someone that was only about 10 pounds lighter than I was. I think I was a little under 200 pounds. I think he was around 180 and, and I listened to him at 160, 165, but <laughs> I think if you see him standing in the ring with me, his shoulders are bigger than mine. He's an inch taller than me. So, so, uh, but he was lighter. I think he was like 10 pounds lighter than me. Um, but, it, but to get beat like that after having all that success and, and it was on me because if you saw the second fight, it was a much different fight. I mean, it was definitely much different. And it was because I understood a little bit. I go, okay, you idiot, go learn it because, you know, there are people out there that, that have different styles that you don't know. And so then my mind changed to going, okay, you know, we, we need to study more. We need to make sure that we have an understanding of, of everything everybody's doing. And so that's why I broadened my horizon, bringing different people into the gym, uh, learning different styles, different type of, of attacks and, and defenses bringing in kickboxers, bringing in boxers, uh, karate guys, just all kinds of different styles to just broaden the horizon on, on making sure that we understood uh, things that were effective. And, and I think by losing a voice, I think that really broadened my perspective, but it also gave me a hunger, a desire. And, and I didn't want anybody else. You know, I remember I made it into the finals and I was going to fight uh, Harold Howard, I think it was. And, I knew I could beat him. I mean, there's no question I could destroy the guy, but I wasn't there for that. Like it, it, I wasn't there for the money. You know, I wasn't there to capture a title. I was there because Hoyce Gracie beat me. And when I lost that opportunity and I know a lot of people, except for guys that are in my position that have been very successful and they have money, uh, understand that going in to fight somebody that you know you could beat is really irrelevant because the only thing that matters at that point in time in your career, because you've already done everything, right? Is winning that tournament wasn't wasn't something that was was that exciting to me. It was Hoist Gracie that took precedence. And I knew that if I went in and won that 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 uh, tournament, that it, getting Hoist again would be hard. 
uh, I just knew that for us to be able to meet again into the finals would be very difficult. That if I won the tournament, then going into the next one, I would probably have every every bracket that I was going to fight would have the toughest guy. And then I might, I might make it into the finals. And then, of course, I would have a broken hand or I would be exhausted, which is no big deal because you got to fight anyways, which I always did. And I remember thinking to myself, they're, they're never, it's never going to be an opportunity for me to get him in a fair spot because obviously they ran the, the organization. Uh, so they were able to match make and do all the things they needed to. But now that they knew me, now they knew who I was, I knew that opportunity wasn't going to be there anymore. And so I wanted to make sure that I could get Hoist Gracie. And I felt like I put so much pressure um, on them by stepping out and saying, I want Hoist. I don't care about this. I don't care about anything but Hoist. I knew that the, everything would focus on getting that fight. And it did. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then talk about when you're, when guys are talking a lot of trash, going back and forth. And now you see it, it keeps getting, it keeps snowballing, right? And of course, people are saying things that are personal and it's hard for it to not get under our skin. How do we, how do we control ourselves what are some things that you've learned over time? Maybe certain things you may overreact to when you realize, okay, I don't care about this. I'm focusing on that. Talk about that a little bit because now athletes are dealing with that constantly. Yeah, I think the first thing that you have to do, and I think it's really important, is to be real. Like, you have to be real. Is it true? And if it's true, fix it. Don't get angry about it. Fix it, right? But if it's not true, what does it matter? Like, who are they? If you respond to it, then it makes it true. <laughs> then it makes people go, wait a minute. Is that true? Like, why is he getting so? So, yeah, I would think when you're dealing with people who are saying things about you that are that are disrespectful. Um, I've always tried to and in a lot of different and sometimes you can't. But but I always try to respond to them like, why? Why do you feel this way? Or why are you saying that? And make them give me an explanation. But if they come back and said, cuz I just think you're that, then you, then you just like, okay, well, I guess we just disagree with one another. Um, you have your perspective. I have mine. We just leave it at that. And of course, they're going to keep coming at you. But sometimes I'll get people when I say, well, why do you think that? And they'll come back and they'll say this. And I said, well, how is that right when I did this, this, and this? And then they were like, yeah, but you didn't do this, this, and this. And then I would say, yeah, but I did do that, this, and this. This is what you're not seeing. And sometimes you'll get them to go, okay, I, I see. Yeah, maybe. Or sometimes we'll just dis, disagree. Um, and that's okay. But most of the time, the majority of the time, you're just going to have to just disagree because the, a lot of them are doing it just because they're angry and they don't like you for whatever reason. And you're not going to change their mind. But it doesn't have any, any bearing on what, you're, what you have to do, what you got to go out and do. And so getting mad about it is a waste of energy. There's nothing that's going to make that any good at all. All it's going to do is show a weakness um, and it's going to show a side of you that a lot of people don't want to see. So um, try to always show that side to where you're, you're more of a thinker and you want to know reasons why. And if you can't get that to happen, then you just don't say anything at all that way. Cause otherwise it's just going to be a bashing. Absolutely. Makes sense. Another question I always wanted to ask about your mindset is that you were, when you were competing, it didn't matter what size the guy was. We see a lot of athletes now, they're, they're complaining, you're weighing in at the same weight, and you're like, oh, this guy feels big. Well, the guy actually is big that you're competing against. Talk about your mindset going into that. 
and not get, and not caring about that? Or how did you focus? Well, for me, I think it was easy because even in high school, um, I think I weighed 160, my biggest, I was 167 pounds. And then my end of my senior year, I was one. No, I was actually my end of my, end of my junior, I was 170. So my senior year, I would wrestle in state, uh, which is the California. I wrestled 185s weighing 170, 165 pounds. Uh, but out of state, because Nevada is right on the border there, we would do a lot of our off season. We would do a lot of tournaments in Nevada. And there was two Nevada state champions. There was one at 190, whatever their weight classes. It was 175 and then one, 190, 180, something like that. So I wrestled both those weight classes. In one of those classes, <clears throat> when I went up to Douglas at the tournament in Douglas in Nevada, <clears throat> there was a, a, a state champion up there. Um, and his name was, uh, I forget his name. He was from long or no, his name was Lomery from Urington. And, uh, and he was a 190 pound, uh, state champion, like two years in a row. He's a senior year. He'd been unbeaten. And I, I met him in the finals and I ended up beating him and I'd been undefeated also. So, and I was only 170 pounds. So I was wrestling him at 190. And then we had a rotary tournament, which was in Susanville, where there was there was the Northern California and then there was Nevada. And they all came to our tournament. And there was another guy there that was named was um, uh, McCann. And he was one hundred and seventy five or one hundred eighty one hundred and seventy five one ninety. So one eighty five at the um, uh, uh, rotary tournament in California. So in in the. Division we had at 190, the guy I had beat was wrestling the heavyweight, which is what it was in, in California. But in in this, because they had a 175-pounder in, in Nevada, he was wrestling the 185-pounder, which is where I wrestled at from 170. So I ended up wrestling him in the finals. And I remember I was down 3 nothing, and in the and over overtime, I tied it up 6-6, six, six, and I ended up beating him 9-6 to six in overtime. Um, and, uh, so it was a, uh, uh, something that I was normal, right? I mean, I always wrestled up and the reason why was because at weighing at 170, 170 pounds, but when I did the bench press contest, I was 160 pounds. When I did this, it was the beginning of the year before the year started. I remember putting on the 320 pounds and I benched it at 160 pounds. And uh, this was the summer before school had started because we were trying to raise money for football and, and the athletic department. So we put on this bench press contest and then you would, uh, um, you would go around and have people um, uh, put so much money on every pound lifted over your body weight. And so I would, went out and got a bunch of people to um, pay like, I don't know how, $5, $10, a dollar, whatever you wanted to do for the, what I would lift over my body weight. And of course, I'm walking around 160 pounds. People go, oh, yeah, we'll do that. He'll you know, maybe a couple of pounds of, I benched 320. So it ended up uh, doing pretty well, but because I was so strong, right. And I, and I moved so fast uh, that when I wrestled heavyweight, I, I was, I was stronger than those guys. I was a little bit lighter in the, in the, in the pants, but when they would throw me around, I was like a cat, I'd land on my feet, shoot back in. And if I got a hold of them, I could pick them up and dump them. So it worked out really well. And then again, I went against two Nevada state champions at two different weight classes and beat both of them. And um, so I felt really good. It was always something I was used to just guys bigger. I just felt better fighting bigger guys. And so even as I moved up into my, uh, into my adulthood and I started 
uh, into the MMA world, uh, there was no weight classes. Even when I was in Pancras, when we were fighting there, there's no weight class. But it wasn't abnormal to me. Like, it's just something that I grew up with. So when someone came in and they were 50 pounds heavier than me, it was no big deal. It's fine. I didn't care. I, I, cause I knew, I knew that there was nobody stronger than me. I don't care what weight they were. I was always really strong. And my, when I said, I got an adult, I went, and, and this is something people can look up. <clears throat> I weighed 225 pounds and I benched 605. That's incredibly strong. And, uh, and I benched it. Uh, I benched in a, in a bench press contest. I benched 585 where you come down, touch, and then come up. Um, so I just uh, always been really strong. And I think in my MMA career, people that had wrestled me early on, later on, when they put weight divisions in there and then I had to drop weight, I, I lost a lot of that strength trying to cut weight and stuff. So, but if you talk to guys that I worked with over in, in Japan and in earlier UFCs, it's one thing, even Kimo said, man, he's so thick and strong because he was 20, 30 pounds bigger than me and had more muscle mass, but I was able to move him pretty easy. And uh, so it was something that I grew up with. Weight difference didn't matter to me. In fact, is I prefer it fighting bigger guys than guys that could move as fast as I could. Um, I preferred the bigger and, and, and slower guys. That makes sense because you're thinking about ultimately being the best. You're not thinking pound for pound. Pound for pound right. ultimately is theoretical. Right, right. And I didn't care. I mean, to me, I thought open division because, and I, I get it. You, you get a guy like Pat Militich, uh, who, in my opinion, it was really good. Him and uh, a few other guys, I thought that were were really good. Um, but because they were so light, let's face it, it does make a difference when you're that light. It does. Um, I know he went against Dan Severn uh, and went went to a draw, which is incredible. But Dan wasn't dangerous. Dan was a guy that could wrestle well. He couldn't punch, but he could wrestle well. So if he went up against a guy like Mark Coleman or somebody like myself, I mean, that's, that, yeah, that's a little bit different. I mean, I, I, it would be the same for me if I was at his weight. It's just dangerous, right? Because those are some heavy hands uh, that you're going to get hit with. And the weight difference starts to make that difference. So I get that. But for me, I was at a great weight. You know, I was around 217. I could go up to 225 if I wanted to. Um, natural weight 217 um, as I, I as I was moving in my career. When I got to cutting weight, it was much lower than that. I had to, to stay a little bit lighter to make the 205 an easier cut. Um, but yeah, so for that, I think that um, the no the, the no weight divisions, I loved it because like you said, um, you, you want to be the best. You want to be the best. And you don't care who it is or what weight it is. You want to be able to prove it. Right. And, and of course we do, we do understand the whole weight class thing, but it's just the mindset that I'll take on anyone. You need right. to have that mindset to be successful, even within a weight class. Yep. And I think that you got some guys out there um, that are willing to do that. I think Conor McGregor is one. He'll fight anybody, you know, and, and, and that to me, that's a testament of guys that I think would do well in the MMA that I fought in the, the, the no holes barred. There are some guys that, that are a little bit more uh, tapered to making sure that guys make weight. And if you miss by a pound and, you know, those are guys that wouldn't survive, uh, wouldn't survive in the world that, that I came up in. And there's very few. Um, the reason why I know this is because when we first did it, nobody, when it was bare knuckle and no rules, you had a lot of tough guys out there in different sports. None of them would touch it. 
None of them would come close to it. Um, and that tells you in itself right there that um, it's a different breed of people that will step in with no rules, no time limit and fight knowing that you can get your head kicked in. That's awesome. Great stuff that the guys actually now hear that here, here coming from your mouth, that that's what, that's the mentality they need to adopt now, even if those yeah. aren't the constraints right now. That's awesome. L- last question I have for you, just generally about everyone talks about the importance of purpose, knowing your why and what you tell yourself on a regular basis. What was that like while you were competing now as a person that just motivates you in sports and life? Yeah, I think, um, from the time I started uh, till till today, it, my why is the same as it's always been, and it's been the the where I came from. We talked a little bit about it. Um, you know, I, I don't want to go back there, and I think that the minute it, it, it may be not true, but in my mindset, it keeps me living um, and going in the direction that I need to go. But I feel like the day that I stop is the day that I open the door to going back to where I came from and with nothing. Uh, and so I feel like, you know, uh, I'm going to just keep going and keep trying to challenge myself um, because I don't want to go to that place where there was nothing to fight for. There was, there was, there was nothing in the future. Um, and you could be the most successful person in the world and still have that feeling like, okay, what do I do today? You know, because you have everything, you've done everything. What are you going to do now? And you could still be in that same mindset from where you first started, where you had nothing. There was nothing to fight for because you had nothing. But you can all have everything and then not have anything to fight for. So you have nothing. Um, And you could get bored. You could start doing things you shouldn't be doing. So I just feel like, man, my why is to always keep challenging myself so I don't get to the point to where I'm unhappy to where it's not exciting to be living life every day, to get up every morning and and look in and see, okay, what am I going to challenge myself today on? Where am I going to go today? Um, And, and to keep pushing. And um, I, I, and I, I would say the reason um, my reasonings and my goals, um, even though I've done everything, but now it's, it's, it's more about, um, it's, it's more about me helping. Like, here's my quote. I believe that we have all been put on this earth to try to be successful, to get to where you want to go, be successful. And you have to take care of you first. Once you've done that, then I believe that it's everybody's responsibility. I'm not just you, me, or anybody. It's everybody's responsibility to turn around and help as many people as you can to achieve the same kind of success. Give them opportunities to be able to reach the goals that they're looking because you've been there and done that. And I and that's my why. That's my that's my goal. That's my reason uh, that I'm doing things now. Um, and staying in the competitive mode now is because I don't want to lose that, that power that I've been given from my success to help other people achieve their success because nobody will listen to you if you're just sitting on the stool enjoying life and not creating anything more than just what you've already done because it'll get old. So keep 
keep driving, keep trying to be more successful and then teach other people how to do the same thing. And my kids, um, you know, I'm actually going to be doing a podcast with my son um, talking about what it's like to be a, a, a father and what it's like to be a son that has a famous father and the struggles and the, the, the good things, the bad things, the expectations, all the things that go with that kind of relationship. Um, so that there's a, that's another part of me going, I'm going to show my son how he can help people, how he can reach out and turn other people and be successful because he's already been through something that would help other people. Um, and at the same time, now we're reaching out to all those other people out there that are struggling in life with the relationship with the family member. Um, and so th- these are, this is, this is what I do. These are things that I'm doing, but if I'm not successful and I don't keep driving to continue to be successful, then none of this stuff is going to be as powerful as it would if I am. Makes a lot, makes a lot of sense. Awesome stuff, Ken. I really appreciate it. I guess this is the last question. How do we send more people your way? You spoke about your podcast, your son, if he is a podcast, how do we push him your way? Yeah. KenShamrock.com. That's my website. I've got all my Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, you name it, everything on there. Uh, You want to stay in touch with what we are doing, especially the podcast. You can find it on there. The world's most dangerous podcast. Um, Also to Valor BK, um, that's the league that we had started uh, in 2020. Unfortunately, uh, the flu virus or the Kung flu virus uh, got us all. So uh, we, we are holding off until we can um, get a, a fan base, uh, whether it's through the social media or, or live, but we're building that platform now. So when we go again, uh, fans have always been important to me. So I want to make sure that we can reach as many as we can when we put these events on, because I think that, uh, to me, that's the future, uh, pure fighting. Um, so, yeah, so if you want to get a hold of us and you want to follow us and stay in tune, ValorBK.com. And um, with all the personal things that I got going on, podcasts, uh, events, all the things that w- we have upcoming and calendar, uh, you can go to KenShamrock.com. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Ken. I really appreciate it. We'll throw all the link to all those in the show notes and so make sure we got them in there. Thank you again. The world's most dangerous man. Thanks a lot, Ken. Appreciate you, brother. All right. Take care. Uh, You too. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.